From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, May 25th. I'm Marco Werman. Egypt's presidential election seems headed for a runoff between the Islamists and the Old Guard. Some opposition activists aren't happy. It's probably the worst outcome of the election I could have imagined. And later, our series Beyond Class continues. We find out what it means to be working class in Britain today. Being working class is almost being on the wrong side of history. It's seen as this throwback to an industrial past which has disappeared. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The results are not official yet, but the historic presidential election in Egypt seems headed for a second round next month. That would mean voters this week narrowed down the field of candidates from 13 to 2. And after more than a year of revolution, unrest and confusion in Egypt, it appears to boil down to this. An Islamist candidate representing the Muslim Brotherhood versus a member of the old regime. The World's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo. Both candidates are something of a shock. There was speculation that the Muslim Brotherhood had made serious mistakes and would suffer at the polls. For starters, it had promised not to put up a presidential candidate, and then its first choice for the position was disqualified. Egyptians disparagingly referred to the Brotherhood's second choice, Mohamed Morsi, as a spare tire. But as the votes were counted at 13,000 polling centers around the country late last night, the Brotherhood's man seems to have come out on top. The Muslim Brotherhood's Egyptian TV channel this afternoon showed dramatic scenes from the uprising to show that Mohamed Morsi represents the hopes of the revolution, while his rival represents the old system under Hosni Mubarak. That man is Ahmed Shafiq. He's a former minister under Mubarak and a favorite candidate of Egypt's military rulers. His campaign message is about restoring order. His strong showing comes as a surprise to many observers. Even as he made a late surge in the polls, Shafiq was considered to be something of a long shot. On numerous occasions, Shafiq encountered protesters at campaign events. And when he cast his vote on Wednesday, the candidate was surrounded by a mob and had shoes thrown at him. Shadi Hamid is a Middle East expert with the Brookings Institution. He says the two choices represent opposite sides of an extreme and a repeat of Egypt's past. There's no doubt this is a very stark choice, uh, complete opposites in a way. And it's almost like we're going back in time, the same kind of divide between regime and brotherhood. And liberals now and revolutionaries find themselves in a very difficult position and they are the big losers here, the people who celebrated the fall of the Mubarak regime but fear the rise of the Islamists. Hisham Qasim is a longtime newspaper editor and opposition activist. Sitting on his living room couch in his Cairo apartment, Qasim's body language says it all. He looks like he's been punched in the gut. It's probably the worst 
outcome of the election I could have imagined. Qasim admits that this result, the Brotherhood's man versus Mubarak's man, comes as a complete shock. I don't think I can vote on the runoff. I don't want ever to think I gave my voice to either of the, my vote to either of the candidates. Many secular, liberal Egyptians no doubt feel the same way, but it's not surprising that the law and order message from Ahmed Shafiq seems to have resonated with Egyptians. Again, analyst Shadi Hamid. The revolutionaries in Egypt haven't been popular for more than a year, so this is not a new thing at all. I mean, there were times when the military would go in and clear Tahrir Square and people would be cheering. The ruling military council has spent day and night tarring revolutionaries, accusing them of foreign funding, calling them traitors. That's what Egyptians have been hearing nonstop for the past year, and that has been very effective. Now faced with two candidates from polar opposite ends of the spectrum, Egyptians who find themselves in the political center have a tough decision to make. Choose between the lesser of two evils or don't vote at all. The final round of voting is in three weeks. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. We have a slideshow of cartoons about the Egyptian election from the Arab world and beyond at theworld.org. It's been a tumultuous few months for Mali. The president of the West African nation was deposed by a military coup in March. The following month, Tuareg rebels in the north declared an independent state. Some 300,000 Malians have fled the ongoing violence and uncertainty, some by crossing into neighboring Burkina Faso. Reporter Marine Olivesi visited some of the refugees there. The Sahel Reserve stretches into the northern tip of Burkina Faso. It's a land of dry bush, bare trees and patches of sunburned grass giving way to sand. Shacks made of sticks and a patchwork of drapes and carpets dot the yellow horizon. Tuaregs fleeing North Mali have flocked here in the tens of thousands. Many have been here before, and they've settled back into what has become a forced second home once again. This 69-year-old Tuareg says he moved back under the same tree where he'd spent almost three years in the mid-90s. Another Tuareg, Yaya Ag Mohamed, was a kid the last time his family fled the violence in North Mali. I started elementary school here in Burkina Faso, he says. Today I'm a father of two, and here I am again, a refugee once more. We pulled back into the same state at every stage of life. Four Tuareg rebellions have broken out since Mali gained independence 52 years ago. Each time, scores fled the military crackdown against Tuareg fighters and civilians. But this time, Tuareg rebels drove Mali's authorities out and proclaimed independence for the Azawad, the Tuareg name for Mali's northern region. Tuareg fighters didn't manage this on their own. They joined forces with a loose coalition of Islamist groups. They shared a common enemy, but not the same long-term goals. Tuaregs fought for a state... Islamists for the imposition of Sharia law. Idwal Agbala, a veterinarian at the refugee camp, calls the Islamist attempt to impose a radical form of Islam colonial. What Islam are they going to teach me? I'm already a Muslim, and that's enough, thank God. We don't want the Sharia law. Our culture is steeped in a moderate and tolerant Islam. Their Islam is an import from Pakistan and Afghanistan, and we don't want it. Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb has thrived in the region in the past few years. 
Now the Al-Qaeda franchise operates unopposed amidst North Mali's chaos, and new Islamist groups have emerged there as well. Last week in Gao, North Mali's most populous city, young people demonstrated against a newly enforced ban on watching TV, listening to music and playing video games. Locals say armed groups opened fire at the protesters. Tuareg refugees say there's a lot of confusion over where the extremists come from and how many there are. But Edouard, the veterinarian, says what they do know about them is alarming enough to keep refugees from returning home. Americans are scared about Islamists. The French are scared about Islamists. Everybody is scared about these groups. So why would we, poor African citizens, be any less scared? I am scared. Refugees who've just arrived at the camp bring stories that stoke the fears. Mohamed Agintama crossed over the border last week with 20 relatives and two other families. He says they left the village because of the new rules imposed by Islamists. They brought clothes for men and women and forced us to wear them. For women, it's a black garment that covers the body from head to toe, even the fingertips. Men have to wear long clothes that cover elbows, and they can't greet women on the street. No one dares go out anymore. If you're caught doing something wrong or wearing something inappropriate, they threaten to beat you if they catch you again. Mohammed says Tuareg groups who support a secular republic are starting to speak out against Sharia, but they aren't strong enough to fight back. He says most locals believe a clash between Islamists and seculars is coming, yet another reason for civilians to flee. Fatoumata Olait Aibala is a women's leader at the refugee camp. She says the best way for the international community to help defeat the Islamist militants is to recognize a Tuareg independent state. Once our leaders are in charge, once we have a country, a government and allies, then we'll be able to fight for the traditions and values of the Tuareg people. But so far, not a single country has recognized the breakaway state, and Mali could soon request help from West African countries to regain control over the lost territory. Refugees in Burkina know they might be here for a long time. Sitting on a bench in the afternoon heat, a group of young men listens to Tuareg music on a cell phone. They say at least here they're safe, and they can still indulge in some cherished tribal tunes. For the world, I'm Marine Olivesi in northern Burkina Faso. You can see Marine's pictures of the refugees in Burkina Faso at theworld.org. Journalist Peter Chilson was in Mali until a few days ago. He was there reporting for Foreign Policy magazine and for the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting. And he's just followed the same route across the border to Burkina Faso as many of the Tuareg refugees we just heard about. What I did find remarkable when I crossed the border was that when we came to the Malian border post, which I was expecting to find abandoned, there were two border guards there, young men who were not at all armed. Right, and, belonging to the Malian army. Right. And they wanted me to know that they weren't armed and that they were not pleased about it. They wanted me to know that they were quite frightened and that they really felt uneasy because they didn't see that there was really a whole lot between them and the rebellion in the north. And then I and, and my driver, we, we kept on going. 
Now, you had to leave Mali because you found yourself reporting in a town where there were no Malian government soldiers. And there was a warning to you that uh, bandits or maybe Islamists were coming the next day to attack that same town. And the prefect there warned you to get out of town. Right. The mayor said to me, look, it's true. I get these warnings all the time. But this warning is very, very specific. And he said to me, if I were you... I would really keep a low profile if you want to stay in town. And my thought was, I did not want to be kidnapped at all. So I left as fast as I could. I mean, it really seems to show the the level of chaos in Mali. No government soldiers in the part of the country allegedly under government control. One can only imagine what it's like in the north where... There are Tuareg rebels, where there are Islamists. Do you have a sense of just how chaotic it is up there? The Malian army apparently lost, according to the diplomatic sources I spoke to in Bamako when I was there, between 50 and 80 percent of its military material. You can really see that in the Mopti region, which is where the army fell back and regrouped. The Mopti region is a central part of the country. And the Malian army is now trying to reorganize itself. And in the north, it is very, very confusing. It's tough to tell who controls what. If the situation in the north of Mali is murky, I mean, it's also kind of confusing what's going on in Bamako, the capital. Who is in charge in Bamako? We're really not quite sure who's in charge. I spoke to the military commanders in Mufti, and they are operating completely independent of Bamako. They're not waiting for orders. And the captain, Captain Sanago, the man who led the coup on March 21st, and he was now apparently the president of Mali. Apparently. Um, we don't even know. Right. They're not taking orders from him. They are acting on their own. And they've made it clear to me that they are going to reinvade the north. So it's obvious they don't have any ability to do that at this time. Well, it remains a very confusing situation in Mali. Thanks very much for bringing a bit of clarity to it. Journalist Peter Chilson teaches writing at the University of Washington. He was speaking to us from Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, you'll need to carry a tune. The capital city we're looking for is hosting a song contest this weekend, but it's known more for its oil riches and poor human rights record. The BBC's Patty O'Connell is in the city where this song contest is being held. And Patty, give us some hints, first of all. What does this place look like? Well, I'm looking at the Caspian Sea and beyond it, an old town mixed with rapid development. There are three towers shaped like flames just ahead of me. And to my left, I'm told the world's largest or second largest flag the size of a baseball diamond. Mm. Turquoise, red and green at the bottom. A crescent and a star in the middle red band. It's waving strongly with the sun high in the sky. All right. So great clues, Patty. Uh, We've got the Caspian Sea in the background, rapid development, and the biggest flag apparently in the world is turquoise, red and green with a crescent and a star. Uh, Give our listeners uh, five, four, three, two, one. Patty, what is the answer? Where are you? We're in Baku, 
capital of Azerbaijan on the Caspian Sea. And the big event there this uh, weekend will be the finale. What are you uh, there to see and attend? This is the 57th Eurovision Song Contest, a throwback to an innocent time when the countries of Europe were pulling themselves out of grim austerity. Of course, they're in it now. Uh, And they Hmm. did it by song. They would sing and they would rate each other's performance. Six or seven at the beginning, now 42 participants, a giant festival of camp and music uh, in, in a country which, as you say, is known for being pretty tough on you if you don't like the government. So uh, it's in Azerbaijan this year because last year uh, was an Azerbaijani winner in Eurovision. How are the Azerbaijanis generally in Baku appreciating uh, this song contest? Well, there are nine million Azeris in the whole country. And the further away you get from the capital, I'm told by researchers in the Azeri service of the BBC, the more conservative-minded people become. But this is a largely Islamic country. But I've seen the women in Baku not wearing headdress. I've hardly seen a single headdress. I've been approached with great friendliness and curiosity because foreigners are a bit of a conundrum as tourists. There's lots of business people here. Mm. I've been met with great warmth. I've also met the mother of one man who's being held in prison because of his political views. And she welcomed me and said, I'm glad you're here for this contest. And long after you've all gone, please don't sell us for oil. So what is the basis of the the human rights abuses in Azerbaijan? I mean, we know the president is uh, this man, uh, Ilham Aliyev. What does he do that uh, gets uh, Azerbaijan uh, such a bad track record? Well, I think you could start with the fact that he inherited the job of presidency of this fabulously wealthy country from his father. So that's the first thing. The second thing to say is that if you come out as dissenting, or if you want to highlight corruption, you face the real risk of a knock on the door. And Amnesty International and others have given us names, they've given us documented cases of people who are roughed up or end up finding their way into jail because their views don't fit. Now, the Azeri government says these are groundless claims whipped up by a hostile Western media that doesn't get the fact that this is a successful Islamic country, uh, broadly speaking, with secular rules that shows religious tolerance, has got money and is doing very well in the world. Thank you. So given all that, Patty, is there discomfort both in and outside Azerbaijan with having Eurovision there? It's a debate because I uh, was told by the mum of one prisoner, you know, it's good you're here. It's shining a light. I was told by another guy walking in the protest in the square, I wish we won it every year. We'd have all these foreign journalists poking around. But certainly it is the question of every big event. Do you give a veneer of respectability by coming to a place with a question of something very basic as can you speak your mind? If you're going to be singing your heart out on a stage, it must be relevant outside the stadium if you can't do the same thing. The BBC's Paddy O'Connell at the Eurovision Song Contest in Baku, Azerbaijan. Baku is the answer to the GeoQuiz today. Paddy, great to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. All this week, we've been hearing about class issues in places like China, Egypt, and India in our series Beyond Class. And we've been getting your comments on the series, so we wanted to share a few of them. Many are about our story and what Indians in the U.S. think about caste and how much it matters to them. Reporter Ritu Chatterjee mentioned that her family is of Brahmin heritage, but that caste isn't part of their identity anymore. One person posted a comment about that at theworld.org. 
Among Indians, one's own caste is so deeply ingrained as if it's the 24th chromosome. The writer went on, Ritu Chatterjee seized the opportunity to talk about her Brahmin heritage by repeating at least five times that she was a Brahmin. That goes to show how hard it is to cast away the caste. We also received comments on our story from Britain about a test that 11-year-olds used to take that determined their future. Most came from people who took the 11-plus exam. Sandy Hirsch wrote about failing it. I desperately wanted to study Latin but was told I couldn't and that there was no point anyway because I wouldn't be going to university. I still shudder and prickle when I think about this. And Valentine Vox wrote, When I was 11, I burst into tears when I heard the news from my mother that I had failed the 11-plus exam. My hopes and dreams of becoming a dentist or astronomer or some other notable profession were over. I was now classed among those who would, ironically, be known as the backbone of Britain, the working-class laborers. Vox went on to write about moving to the U.S. Disgusted with the social class system, I left for the new world at 19, where I found I would be judged by my abilities and not by my family background or the way I spoke. And yet, even here in the U.S., a land where class distinctions supposedly don't matter, we're hearing a lot of talk about class this election year. Just listen to some of the campaign rhetoric, starting with Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, who's facing a recall election next month after he pushed through a law restricting collective bargaining. This measure that I just signed in the law gives local governments, and particularly schools, the ability to make decisions based on performance and merit, not just based on seniority and a union contract. I remember my old, old Fred Tenkett, and he, he used to say, what is it about working men and women they find so offensive? The last three years have held a lot of change, but they haven't offered much hope. The middle class has been crushed. Nearly 24 million of our fellow Americans are still out of work. Wall Street's corporate raiders made billions. Private equity leaders getting rich at the expense of American workers. Corporations are people, my friend. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. One of my potential opponents, Governor Romney, has said that he hoped a similar version of this plan from last year would be introduced as a bill on day one of his presidency. He said that he's very supportive of this new budget. And he even called it marvelous, which is a word you don't often hear when it comes to describing a budget. It's a word you don't often hear generally. <laughs> However subtle the barbs or not, class politics in the U.S. often translate into suspicion of certain groups, the elite, for instance, or union members. Then there's everyone else, the majority of Americans who identify themselves as middle class. The next and final story in our series, Beyond Class, looks at similar forces at play in class-conscious Britain. That's coming right up after the break. This is PRI. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Tunisian singer Sonia Mbarak reflects on her music and on her country's future post-Arab Spring. Revolution isn't a fact of one year or two years. Perhaps we need 10 years for the real sense of freedom and democracy.
The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. We're turning our attention now to the country where we began our series this week, Beyond Class. It's a place where for centuries people's lives were determined by the class they were born into. Britain still has its royals, its lords and ladies, and its subjects, but a lot of the rules have changed. As in the United States, more Britons than ever call themselves middle class. Fifteen years ago, one politician famously said, we are all middle class now. Well, if everyone is middle class, does class exist anymore in Britain? Does it matter? And what about the working class, the one that powered the Industrial Revolution, and the class that gave us the Beatles, Michael Caine and David Beckham? Where has it gone? Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Working class culture in Britain may have been strongest underground. The deeper you travel, the more you need the help of those around you. It's been that way for generations of mine workers. We're watching for each other all the time. That's why they're called as brothers, comrades. You find no matter where you work, when you come across each other, you've got that bond together. You always will have. It's no different in this coal mine. Whether you like it or not, you're in a group of people with common needs and goals. Except in this mine, it is different. There's no coal production here, no miners. There are guys dressed as miners who used to be miners. But this mine stopped production in 1985. It's a museum now. My guide's name is Mick Green. He used to work a dozen miles away at the Grimethorpe mine. A lot of people know Grimethorpe. It has a famous brass band who struggles after the mine closed with the subject of the movie Brassed Off. Today, Mick Green says, you wouldn't even know there'd been any mining at Grimethorpe. There's an industrial park there now. And you've got some places are call centres, some places are basically warehouses for storage. So you've lost all that where people worked, and it's cheaper workers because they're on a very low wage in call centres, aren't they? Soon after the mine closed down, the European Union named Grimethorpe the poorest village in Britain. It was never a rich place, but when the mine was open, there was an infrastructure around the mine, an infrastructure of working-class life. The brass band was part of that. So was the Miners' Institute with its recreational facilities. A cricket ground, a football ground, all provided for by money from our wages because we paid into that donations every week. There's no institute at Grimethorpe now. It's been flattened. Most of pubs has gone, and most of the housing's all gone. The institute, the pubs, the housing, the work itself, it all added up to a sense of community. And communities like Grimethorpe's dotted Britain's landscape. The men who laboured at the coalface were almost mythic figures in working-class culture and in British society. In the 1980s, though, words like community and society became tainted with the politics of socialism. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher declared there was no such thing as society. And she said class was unimportant. Thatcher wanted to reorder British public life away from the upper, middle and working classes into a nation of consumers, owners and shareholders. 
It should be as natural for people to own shares as it is to own their own home or to own a car. People should not be classified as either earners or owners, as either employees or shareholders. They should be both. To accomplish this, Thatcher demanded that government-owned industries privatise, or at least show a profit, starting with the coal mines. Miners were laid off. We do obey the time-honoured ritual of not crossing a picket line. The miners went on strike, and for several bitter, often violent months, the outcome was uncertain. But eventually, the union lost. The mines closed down one after another. Britain's working class lost not just jobs, but a part of their identity. Margaret Thatcher had won her battle against unionized labor. Her successors, John Major and Tony Blair, built on those foundations. Major made it a central goal of his tenure to establish what he called a classless society. Tony Blair, though, had a different problem. His Labour Party was traditionally the party of the working class. So Blair's new Labour broadened its appeal and won three consecutive general elections. By then, everyone was supposed to be middle class. Two years ago, Labour finally lost out to a Conservative-led coalition. Not that you could tell the difference, says Owen Jones. Jones has written a book about class attitudes in today's Britain. He says both main parties think the same way. The political consensus has developed around the idea that being working class is something to escape from. And being working class is almost being on the wrong side of history. It's seen as this throwback to an industrial past which has disappeared. And it's this idea, this universal idea, which all politicians on left and right have embraced, we're all middle class. But Britain is far from all middle class. About 20% of the population lives below the official poverty line, and many others are struggling. And unlike in the past, this group of people doesn't have much of a collective identity or much of a voice. Union membership is barely half what it was when Margaret Thatcher came to power. And the jobs available, like at the call centre where the Grimethorpe mine used to be, those jobs are far less secure. It's not a job for life often. There's a huge turnover. There's more part-time work, lots of temporary workers who don't have basic rights. So this workforce, this new working class, if you like, is it's cleaner, the jobs are cleaner, less back-breaking, but less prestigious and often far less pay. The people who get by, or often don't get by on these jobs, are not courted by politicians or represented by unions. In fact, they're often lumped in the same category as pretty much anyone else who doesn't fit into the middle class. The long-term unemployed, for example. The people who rioted in many British cities last summer. And also a certain popular TV character. This boot camp is home to Vicky Pollard, a member of Britain's thriving underclass. Underclass is a word that's been in vogue in Britain for the past decade, as have TV shows that caricature poor, uneducated people. Vicky Pollard's a character from the show Little Britain. She's lazy, promiscuous, thieving and violent. In the version made for HBO, Vicky Pollard goes to an American boot camp for wayward youth and is questioned by a counsellor. And what about school? Oh, yeah, I went there once. It was all right. You went there once? Yeah, yeah. I've done math, or something enough fun, histography, biometry, and... Oh, what's that one where they're all talking some weird language in that and you can't really understand it? French? No, English. It's one thing to mock the so-called underclass on TV, 
Vicky Pollard is pretty funny, but it's more troubling when the stereotyping happens in real life. Police emergency. This is four years ago. A woman is reporting her daughter missing. Right, how old is she? Nine. Nine. Yeah. When did you last see her? The mother is Karen Matthews. She lived on a housing project, didn't work, had lots of kids, and appeared to have lots of sexual partners. A few days after she made that call, Matthews appealed to the public. Somebody's out there that has actually got Shannon. It's just broken the family that we had apart. Karen Matthews was lying. She knew where her daughter Shannon was, hidden in the house of a family friend. Police found Shannon Matthews a few weeks later alive. The plan had been for that family friend to find Shannon and then claim the reward money that a newspaper had put up. For the news media, Karen Matthews became the sick representative of an entire class. The family's chaotic nature, five fathers, seven children, and the whole benefits culture that went along with it opened the eyes of the country to an underclass that many of us choose usually to ignore. The tabloids were much harsher. A writer for the now-defunct News of the World wrote of a subhuman class who contribute nothing to society yet believe it owes them a living. Good-for-nothing scroungers who have no morals and no compassion. The Reverend Kathy Robertson is driving me around the housing project where the Matthews family lived. This is the edge of Dewsbury, a town in the north of England. The buildings here are squat, red brick, a few are boarded up, but most have well-kept yards. It's all set against the backdrop of the rolling Pennine Hills. Even a few years after Shannon Mania, as it's called here, Kathy Robertson is wary of the snap judgment of outsiders. I feel very protective, I feel very angry, and I meet people on a regular basis that will talk in a very condescending and a very disrespectful way of this, this area in this community, and it just really makes me feel very cross. We stop at a place called the Community House. Four years ago, this was a neighbourhood hub in the effort to find Shannon. It was the one good thing that came out of that time, locals say. People got to know each other as they wrote flyers and made calls. <laughs> Naomi Fisher is here today. She grew up here and lives four doors from where the Matthews lived. Fisher shudders as she recalls what was said and written about people like her who lived on the housing estate. The, the worst part of it is that because Karen Matthews' family itself was completely um, different fathers here, there and everywhere, and because her sense of family was the way it was. They just assumed that the entire estate was like that, but there are, there are so many married couples on the estate with children who all have the same father, who go out to work, um, but they didn't focus on that. They, they focused on the negative. Fisher tells me she herself has four kids and has at times been out of work, her husband too. It's tough, even more so now with the country in recession. Fisher figures she'll be able to afford to send just one of her kids to college, it's not like the old days when college was free. But subsidising education is less of a priority these days, even at a time when government officials say there's a shortage of well-trained teachers and medical professionals. They're complaining that there's a lack of nurses, a lack of doctors. Well, pay then for, the, for these, these children, these young adults, to, to train to do that. Don't sit there and, and complain about it. Pay for it. Never mind the banker and his big, you know, his, his big bonus. 
The bankers' big bonuses, just when Britain's economy is shrinking, have struck a nerve across the country. Suddenly, class divisions are back in the limelight. It comes as a shock to some politicians. The political parties, it seemed, had written off class as a phase that Britain went through. When David Cameron became prime minister two years ago, for example, it wasn't a big deal that his cabinet was overwhelmingly made up of privileged men and women educated in elite private schools. But the anger over bankers and the recession has changed that. Just this month, Conservative MP Nadine Doris labelled Cameron and his finance minister George Osborne posh and out of touch. I think that not only are Cameron and Osborne two posh boys who don't know the price of milk, but they're two arrogant posh boys who show no remorse, no contrition, and no passion to want to understand the lives of others, and that is their real crime. This attack from a Conservative MP directed at her own party leaders has raised eyebrows, and it comes in the midst of a debate in Britain over whether the Cameron government's economic vision is off kilter, whether it's too reliant on banking and financial services, and not enough on manufacturing. People who work in banking don't tend to belong to a union. In manufacturing, they do. So a move toward manufacturing would likely revive the unions. Writer Owen Jones would welcome that. Britain's poor, its underclass, its working class, whatever name you want to call them, they need their interests represented, says Jones. The problem is there's been a real sense of defeatism in the Labour movement. The miners' strike being the classic example. It's often romanticised, a glorious fight, but the miners lost. What the Labour movement needs to do is to pick struggles where they can win and then to really yell about them. And Jones looks to a couple of unlikely places for inspiration. To China, where independent unions are outlawed, but groups representing workers have won concessions in factories. Also to the United States, where attempts to ban collective bargaining in some states has met with surprisingly strong opposition. When I was in America myself, I went on a AFL-CIO rally in Michigan on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, and that was brilliant. It was attracted a very broad range of people and they're taking a very creative approach to this attack on union rights and that's what has to happen in this country too trade union activists in particular have to look not least because we're so weak to community groups to wider activist groups to broaden out and and look at ways to win wider public support but america shows it can be done in britain right now though unions are relatively weak the working class have lost much of their culture and identity and the country is being run by men and women from the upper crust There are the haves and there are the have-nots. There are the rich and there are the poor. There are those who rise and those who sink. Filmmaker Mike Lee has been trading in the nuances of class difference for his entire career in films like Secrets and Lies and Vera Drake. For Lee, classlessness is a mirage. There is always class, and there's no question that continues to be the case in these islands. Of course it does. Um, And you can certainly look at the current political landscape and apply that very, very accurately to what's going on and who's in charge and who are on the losing end and who's on the winning end, of course. It may be true that Britain is among the world's most class-obsessed nations, but the story of these past decades and the attempt by politicians of all political stripes to transcend class, to rise above it, this story may tell a wider story about whether any society can completely free itself of such social markings. In Britain and elsewhere, there may be no getting beyond class. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox.
We have a slideshow with photos of many of the people featured in Patrick's story at theworld.org. While you're there, check out all the other stories in our series, Beyond Class. And right now at theworld.org, the world's Patrick Cox is answering your questions about the series. Just click on the link that says Live Chat. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Goat Rodeo. Follow cellist Yo-Yo Ma and friends on a musical journey full of lively, unscripted bluegrass melodies. Tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Spain and North Africa share a cultural connection. That's the legacy of centuries of Muslim rule on the Iberian Peninsula. For our global hit today, we're going to hear from an artist who performs a musical style rooted in that legacy. Reporter Bruce Wallace has this profile of Tunisian singer Sonia Mbarek. It seemed appropriate that my conversation with Sonia Mbarek took place in a mixture of English, French, and Arabic. For example, here she describes what she was going for in a recent project that tied the work of a 20th century poet to medieval music. A sort of uh, jadal. I don't know if you... Um, jadal... Uh, a relation or... Um, connection, connection. Connection between... between yes, a, yes, yes. Uh, virtual conversation between... It seemed appropriate because our music is kind of that way too. It moves freely between eras and styles and languages and regions, blending traditions from all around the Mediterranean. Part of her music is the cosmopolitan tradition of Malouf. Malouf is a Tunisian style with roots in the courts of Al-Andalus, the medieval Muslim kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula. When she was younger, Mubarak heard her grandmother singing Malouf around the house. Later, in conservatory in Tunisia, she studied it formally, becoming one of the first women to perform the traditionally male genre. This song, which opened her recent New York City performance, layers old on new. The words come from a 14th century poem. The music is by a contemporary Tunisian composer. Mixing all of these influences on her albums and in her performances is not just a musical choice for Mbarak. It's cultural and maybe political, too. I think music or art in general is the only medium today that creates a real familiarity between people. Because I think the problem today is we don't know each other well. This ensemble that accompanied Mbarak during her recent New York and Philadelphia performances embodied this polyglot approach. 
The group was led by Palestinian-born violinist Hannah Hori. Other members hailed from Syria, Morocco, Venezuela, and Philadelphia. And even the non-Arabic speakers in the New York audience had little trouble understanding Mbarak's vocal force. Here she is at the beginning of an extended vocal improvisation based on classical Turkish modes. performing or composing or taking care of her two sons, Mbarak is working on finishing up a doctorate in political science. I asked her what had changed in her country, politically and otherwise, since last year's revolution. Nous avons besoin de temps. I think we need time to understand the results of the revolution, she said. Revolution isn't a fact of one year or two years. Perhaps we need ten years for um, the sense, the, the real sense of freedom and democracy. She described a sort of mini-revolution, though, that was taking place all the time in music. I think when there is an original idea, a new idea in music, that's revolutionary. She pointed, for instance, to the revolution of being the first female singer in the male-dominated Malouf. She had some young conspirators for this recent on-stage revolution. Backing up Mbarak on several songs were 23 members of the Philadelphia-based Keystone State Boy Choir, ages 8 through 18. Adam Sa, a 7th grade member of the choir, told me that the hardest thing about learning the music wasn't actually memorizing tons of Arabic. It was the quarter tones, notes in Arabic scales that are between the ones in typical Western scales. They were just so hard to sing because our ears are trained, so everything would sound sharp and flat. And then uh, Hannah, one of the members of the ensemble who worked with us for 10 weeks, told us that that's actually how it was, and we were all kind of like, really? Sa said that, after this, everything just clicked for the choir. He said it was a great feeling. His favorite moment of the experience, though, was hanging out with Sonia Mbarak backstage before the New York show. He said they just stood around talking about the everyday things anybody talks about. But just being able to, to be back there and talk with her was just so awesome. Another instance of Mbarak and her music creating familiarity between people. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace.
You can see Tunisian singer Sonia Mbarak performing with the Keystone State Boy Choir at theworld.org. Our theme music was written by Eric Goldberg. The World is produced by Jeb Sharp with Andrea Crossan, Joyce Hackle, Carol Hills, David Lavalle, April Peavy, Adeline Sear, Tracy Tong, and Carol Zoll. Ann Lopez is our director. Our editors are Jennifer Gordon and Aaron Schachter. William Troop is senior editor, Chris Wolf, news editor. Our managing editor is Jonathan Dyer. The executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Join us online at theworld.org and have a great Memorial Day weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.